0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com UCTV. And thanks.
1: So welcome, everyone, to the first of three conversations with notable scientists here at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm the head of public affairs and your host. I'm also going to be your voice, kind of the common guy sitting in the chair opposite the very uncommon, Uh, uncommonly smart and very uh, world-renowned Omar Yagi, who's head of the Molecular Foundry here at the lab, which has to be uh, one of the best and coolest titles probably in the whole national laboratory system, head of the Molecular Foundry. But before we begin the actual conversation, I wanted to talk to you about a larger purpose, because people who know me realize that I always do have a hidden purpose, and we're going to be talking about the hidden world today. So That purpose is this. There used to be a time in American history when science was at the center of the national conversation, when there was no question about science being the source of greatness or economic prosperity or innovation. But something has changed in the last 50 or 60 years. I don't really know why, but it's now kind of an option, like a cup of coffee or a vacation destination that we sometimes visit, that we maybe like, but we don't spend a lot of time there. And again, I don't know why that's the case. Maybe it's because we've been seduced by the fruits of science, something we call technology. Uh, And because we're an impatient people, we forget about the failure and the long slog that it takes for there to be progress. So today, in our very, very small way, We hope to begin this march back to the center of the national conversation, to the public square. Uh, These conversations will be about uh, inspiration, about motivation. They'll be about questions, about purpose, about why publicly funded science is so necessary, so valuable, and so important to the future of this country. And lastly, we will be talking a lot about the future and because when you really think about it, the future is all we really have, so we better get it right. So with that, please welcome Omar Yagi, head of the Molecular Foundry. <laughs> so Omar, if I may call you that? Please do. Okay. Um, I did my own little poll, as the average not very good chemistry student, uh, talking to people about chemistry, non-scientists and it's interesting to me that the in the common parlance chemistry is often referred to in relationship to people and the chemistry that people have between themselves is transformation that goes on. So I, I want to start with a couple of questions. Number one, if is the chemistry that you do have any bear any resemblance to this kind of transformational aspect that happens between people? And again, as kind of the average student in chemistry, what is it about chemistry that I need to know that's going to make me
2: realize that it has value? I I think. Um chemistry is really about atoms and how atoms are connected in space. And uh, of course, uh, a lot of things that we see around us are made of uh, molecules, atoms that make molecules and molecules that assemble to make larger objects. So, for example, you're a collection of Proteins and RNAs and DNAs and uh, other things, I'm sure. So when you look at people, uh, do you see structures and things? Do you not really? Um, I do, but I don't recommend that you do. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that?
3: <laughs>
2: so, I mean, I, in, I, I think chemists in general like to dig deeper beneath the, uh, the, 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 the world that we see. I, mean, I think they are really enamored by the hidden, what I call the hidden world, what is behind a phenomena? What is you know why does a material behave in the way it does, and not just why, but also how do we make it better? How do we um, how do we change it? So so chemistry is not just about what I said; it's not just about the atoms and how they're connected, but also how they transform into other things. How so there is a
1: transformational process.
2: Ab- absolutely. Okay. So these we call chemical reactions, and again they. Happen in our body, they happen in many important uh, uh, processes that lead to wonderful products.
1: So let, let's get basic for a second. Um, describe to me this hidden world.
2: Uh, what you see. I mean, what, what, I, what I see is, um, um, is uh, really I see drawings of, of structures and, and they're mobile, they move around. And uh, collide into each other and co- and reactions are uh, uh, are made, and there are products, and these products go on to do, to do things. so um, I, I was always intrigued by the idea, even when I was a child, the idea that uh, that you can really uncover something or an unveil something that, that would be hidden behind. What you're what you're seeing, so it's almost like a, you know, it's a it's a discovery, it's it's exploration uh, of an unknown world and knowing the secrets of how it works, and so, you know, to me that's sort of a, a privilege that I have to be able to to know that above and beyond what might be obvious.
1: So when did this? Was there a moment when uh, you became interested in Molecules, the hidden world? Was there a mentor or uh, something that you can describe that had happened in your childhood?
2: Well, I think, I'd, I mean, uh, in general, I was always interested in, I think my, uh, my original interest in how things work came from physiology. And, uh, you know, going down the market and watching... Uh, carcasses of animals and things like that and wondering, you know, what different parts, you know, how do they operate and things like that. So you but, hung
1: out at butcher shops? This is in Amman in Jordan sure, where you grew yeah, up? Yeah. Okay. Main street in and Amman,
2: King Talal Street. How old were you then? I was very young, uh, five years old. Well, I used to pass through there to go to school.
1: So, so what did you learn um, when you looked at the butcher shop?
2: <laughs> well, I think more relevant really is, uh, because I didn't really like that so much. It, was, it wasn't, there wasn't enough there for me to, you know, chemists are really about controlling things, right? Chemists love to put things exactly where they want them. And, and atoms and molecules, as a lot of people know, are, n- are not easy to control. And so we spend a lot of time as chemists trying to control matter on that, on that scale, the nanoscale. So, so as a child, I, you know, I went into school one day, and I saw that the library was closed and should be open in the middle of the day, and I went in, the inn and started, you know, I secretly went in. The door was unlocked, and I started leafing through a book, and there I saw what I see now behind objects. These, these. These spheres that are connected to each other, what we call now stick and ball diagrams, and they were they were of very simple molecules like water and, and natural gas, methane, mostly methane. So, so to me at that time, I realized that that's you know that was a that was unique. It so was, was it was about, very attractive to me. To realize, is there really water? That was very interesting. So, because it, it meant that I knew something about the hidden, this hidden world, about the makeup of this hidden world.
1: When you talk a lot about structure, was there something about the structure? Was there some art, artistic light that went on in, in your brain as well, do you suppose?
2: No, it's just, it just was something new. I was very interested in it. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: were you interested in other things? Like, did you play sports? No. I mean, no. no, I was
2: no? actually, sport was my worst topic. <laughs> How so? um, uh, the Our teacher would constantly push me into the field while the kids are playing, and I would always sit on the sideline watching them play, and probably not even just have my eyes open, but uh-huh. probably thinking about something else. I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, I, that was my worst topic. Okay. Yeah. So, but in general, I was, you know, I, yeah, I mean, growing up, I was, uh, I would sit in a corner and read and uh, write, whatever. Uh, and draw. But in perhaps? general, for example, I don't know how to bike. I don't know how, I'm, I'm horribly terrified of, of projectiles, you know, balls coming at you, you know, <laughs> and soccer. They didn't, I don't like that. They didn't at make all. you play dodgeball in Germany. <laughs> no, oh, no. Good, that's good. No, okay. Yeah. That's good. But I think, I think at the heart of it, if, if I think back at my childhood, I think what was attractive to me was knowing the makeup of something that is so common as water or natural gas, to know that what it, what it's, what it looks like, what the molecules look like. That was quite attractive. And it sort of brought out this, what I still feel today, is this explorational... A mentality of approaching chemistry as a as as a world where you can explore new things and develop new things. So,
1: you mentioned that chemists like to change and control things.
2: So, yes. Well, we first want to control them, then change them. Right. Okay. <laughs> control and change. Um,
1: To some, that might sound a little like you. It's not really about discovery. It's about, well, it is about control, maybe manipulation.
2: Well, I think at some point, uh, after you've explored and found, you want to understand and you want to try to manipulate things so that you bend nature in ways that that nature doesn't want to do for some advantage that you think might be derived from that. For example, a chemist could twist around an atom in a molecule and turn a molecule from being a poison into medicine. So it's that type of control that you want to have on, the, on this hidden world to allow you to, to do beneficial things.
1: What do you say to people who would hear the phrase, bend nature, and they would be aghast? Have you had conversations with, with people who would be aghast at that term?
2: Uh, no, I didn't actually. Yeah. No. I, what would I you think, say? I mean, in general, in general, in general, we're trying, we are trying to learn from nature, trying to understand nature, but also uh, the non-biological world is about transferring concepts from nature into uh, synthetic materials, into the, the things that make our life more convenient and things that, like I mentioned, pharmaceuticals and things like that that, make, that, that that make our lives better.
1: So did you start out with this idea? You, st- you said that you were interested no, in... No, no, I, I yeah. didn't. Okay, no, so I, how I did this evolve to a position where you actually think that I, I can do things for the public benefit? What's the trajectory there of your career? Let's, get, let's ask it that way.
2: Um... I don't know. I was always interested in the beauty of molecules. And since I didn't have tinker toys when I was growing up, I guess I started thinking, well, how do I, what happens if I start linking things together? It turns out that when I was a graduate student, that, that was really a huge challenge. Sticking things together to make larger objects mean, meant that you, that you completely lost that control over their order and you made materials that were not characterizable, we call them amorphous materials. So I wasn't attracted to working on amorphous materials, because I thought, you know what, I can only live one lifetime, and I'd rather work with things I can identify uh, rather than spend a lot of time on a material trying to identify what it's made, but rather I can try to fix the chemistry in such a way as to make them crystalline. Turns out that Crystalline means ordered. Was a huge challenge, and so if you could overcome this challenge of um, uh, this crystallization challenge, you could then have control over building whatever structure that uh, that you want. And I and and very early on, we were able to overcome this challenge. using different you know just trying to control the chemistry and different tricks in the chemistry to to crystallize to trick these molecules or these larger structures into crystallizing but once you crystallize a material now you can go and figure out exactly how it's made how it's connected how the atoms and molecules are connected within the structure and then you can begin to ask questions well what if i start changing this part and this part what how does that impact the properties but you know i mean when i started my independent career as a researcher at arizona state university i really just wanted to make beautiful molecules and and i didn't care whether i get tenure or not i was i was so happy that i had my own lab and uh, and and startup funds <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you would make these beautiful mo- molecules and then and see what they could do or what 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 did you Well do I mean initially,
2: initially we were very excited because you can make them because mm. you know it was it was really exciting because you can take inorganic units and organic units and stitch them together into very large structures and you had control over both of these chemistries now you've combined two chemistries that people originally thought were separate—the inorganic, the organic. The organic inorganic and the organic—and the potential is huge because you know you've got the whole periodic table to work with on the inorganic side, and you've got libraries of organic molecules that are known that you, one can use in this process of building of building structures. Okay. So. If I may, so may this, ask me, yeah,
1: interrupt one second, yeah. so just for, for the audience, you, average me person, started, when you no, talk, but I know I, mean, I, I want to get you started. But <laughs> the, the scale, when we talk about these large structures, so for the regular person, what are you talking about, large structures? How, give me a sense of how large uh, is large.
2: They, yeah, I mean, they, they range uh, in, in size. They can go from the nano size to a size that we can see with our own eyes. Assemblies can become large enough that you can actually see them in the form of crystals. Just like a, a piece of diamond, let's say. Okay. Um, so. Um, and were all chemists
1: equally curious about this inorganic, organic fusion, if I may call it that?
2: I think most, most chemists are, um, yeah, I mean, maybe the feelings I'm, I've just expressed, maybe not uncommon among chemists. I think we're all excited about this exploration and discovery, trying to find out. How we can make new things, and what are these new things going to do um, so and and some of us who are lucky enough to discover the right thing uh, that has eventually benefit to society, see the fruits of that labor and many many of us are quite happy just making molecules because they 're very beautiful, but it, it goes really beyond that because. Because basic research, which is doing things for the sake of advancing knowledge, is also a, an intellectual, you're overcoming intellectual uh, challenge. You're addressing an intellectual challenge. And when we started doing this chemistry, it wasn't obvious to me how they would be applied. I mean, I had, I had some hunch, but I was, it wasn't, to me it wasn't exciting to just improve on a property. Just because you can functionalize and vary the components, um, we were trying to address a challenge of how do you take molecules the makeup of things the makeup of living things and and, and synthetic things how do you take these building units and stitch them together into variously shaped uh, molecules and extended structures uh, that has much wider impact than just making a good material for, you know, storing natural gas.
1: Okay, so let's talk about, let's let's get to that now, because we're talking about something that, if I went to Google and and typed in Omar Yagi and metal organic uh, frameworks, how many citations would I see? A lot? I have no idea, but I imagine quite a few, Okay, so that's what you're most famous for, I believe, or... Maybe there's some other things I don't know about, which yeah, we can discuss. Maybe not. Uh, but so, a metal organic framework, uh, MOFs, I believe they are called. So, tell, tell me about them. And again, you talked about the impact and the impact on society, on the public. What can they do for us?
2: Well, MOFs, uh, as they are now called, um, uh, essentially they are they're porous uh, crystals, or some people call them porous sponges. And so, they, they can store. Um, the first let's say, wave of applications is deals with storing of storage of gases. So just to make it uh, uh, really a simple analogy is that if you take, let's say, a container filled with a moth, you can store more gas in that container than a container that doesn't have moth, which seems a little strange and like magic. But the reason you can store more gas is because by virtue of having the moth material being attractive to that gas, you can stack gas molecules within their pores a lot closer than those gas molecules would be had the material not been there. Gas molecules like to stay away from each other, they repel each other. Mm-hmm. But when it, by virtue of having the moth material act like a honey in a honeycomb, you can assemble gas molecules and stack them, let's say, as you would uh, stack cars in a car park, closer to each other, overcoming their repulsions and therefore storing more gas.
1: So capturing carbon, for example.
2: Capturing carbon is another another potential uh, application. There's a lot of interest right now in uh, uh, using MOFs, specially designed MOFs, by virtue of the chemistry that is being developed now by many groups around the world, of tweaking the substituents on the on the components in such a way as to seek out just carbon dioxide from among a host of other gases, like nitrogen and oxygen, that exist all around us. So to be able to create a material that can seek out a small molecule like carbon dioxide from other molecules like it, other gas molecules that look very similar in size and shape to CO, to carbon dioxide is... Is quite clever of that material, okay. And perhaps of the
1: chemists too. And
2: hopefully, this then would have impact. On there's a lot of interest because MOFs are easy to make. They're they've been demonstrated to be scaled up to multi-ton quantities. Many things, many of the good things you need to see in a material exist in in these in some of these MOFs.
1: Okay, so would we envision a future where MOFs would be arrayed or deployed along freeways, for example, to, to actually you take can, carbon out?
2: Yes, you, you can. You can envision that.
1: What would um. be the practical use of
2: that?
1: <laughs> so what would, be the other, what would be another practical use, maybe that's more visionable?
2: Um, I, I mean, I think that, uh, that, that the, the chemistry now is so sophisticated that if you think about how enzymes work, where there's, you know, there's a pocket... Into which, let's say, a substrate comes in, and gets transformed into something else, let's say, methane going to methanol. Mm-hmm. Uh, that pocket is is a is a well-defined entity that has a heterogeneous uh, composition of molecules and different metals in different uh, connectivities. And this heterogeneity makes that a unique entity that can be very specific to this useful transformation. Well, imagine if we can create that inside a moth structure, such that the moth interior is like a vessel that is tailor-made to transform natural gas into a fuel, into liquid fuel. Or instead of pumping carbon dioxide under the ground after we capture it, why not take carbon dioxide and convert that into a liquid fuel? Why not using these entities? Well, because the basic science of doing that has is is just beginning to 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 be pursued. Uh, we need, you know, there is there should be. We don't know a lot about the chemistry of carbon dioxide outside outside the body, and and. Uh, <coughs> And so, so we need more attention uh, to be paid to, to developing the chemistry and reactivity. We discussed transformations, which is, which is how you're going to get to these liquid fuels. We need to understand the chemistry better. How does carbon dioxide interact with, the, with its environment?
1: So is this a problem that you're working on?
2: This is a problem that not just I'm working on, but many other scientists are. This is a major effort. All around the world. I mean, a huge effort is being is being made here at LBL and and at, at uh, University of California, Berkeley. So, so this is a huge problem, and uh, and uh, we need to address this problem. This is it's urgent. The reason we're capturing carbon dioxide now is because we have no other way to do it. We're just storing it under the ground, and because we have no better way. Of there's just so much of it, um, we need to understand the chemistry so that we can convert it to fuel and make it make it.
1: If it had to be stored underground, could we <coughs> extract it and then turn it into a fuel? If, if, if the timing of the of the research did not exactly work out,
2: uh, ultimately, yes. If it, um, yeah, ultimately, you should be able to do that. Okay.
1: Um, this seems like uh, what we would call very big science, even if it's on a small scale, um, the hidden world scale. Is that something that, uh, when you think about Berkeley Lab, that is an attribute of this place being able to look at big problems and sort of develop interdisciplinary teams?
2: Well, I think that's a strength of of this lab, and it's an attractive place to, you know, it's an attractive, exciting, I think, exciting place to do this kind of science. Converting CO2 into liquid fuel is a huge problem, and not one scientist can solve that problem on their own. This, ne- this requires many great minds to come together, and LBL, I think, uh, is, a, is a great place to do that. It has demonstrated strength in forming teams to address problems from beginning to, you know, down all the way to fruition.
1: It seems to me, too, as you talk about these metal-organic frameworks, that you seem to be learning a lot about new materials. So if that's the case, can we foresee a future in which you can imbue materials with qualities that we can't possibly imagine? now? A little science fiction, science fantasy question.
2: Yeah, I mean, oftentimes the things that you think you are going after when you're doing basic basic science, as I do, in the end, transform themselves into something something else because we, ha- we look at what we make and, and different scientists can look at the same thing, but actually their view might be different about what it means and how it can be used. And that's really the strength of approaching science in that way. And so, you know, when we first started doing math chemistry, I didn't realize that we would be here where... They are poised to be deployed now as natural gas storage materials and in the near future, hopefully, carbon dioxide capture materials and many, many other uh, applications. Um, but had I started there, looking at the application first, and then pursued a solution to that application, we would not have opened up all these different possibilities. Uh, in terms of what is the future of MOF looks like, where is this going, is that now if you can, if you have control over uh, decorating the interior with these organic units and then varying the metals, now you can start thinking about maybe you can design sequences of functional groups in the in the MOF that code for very specific properties. As I mentioned earlier in, in the, my initial remarks, just tweaking or rotating an atom or, or a group of atoms, just a few degrees makes a huge difference in chemistry, in transforming a molecule from one state to another, uh, or transforming a molecule from, let's say, uh, f- from uh, b- b- uh, let 's say natural gas into a, into a liquid fuel or something like that so so could we um, we know that now we can design these multi functionalized systems, and we, 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 we think that we have sequences just like you would have sequences of nucleotides in DNA. These sequences are going to dictate our properties in a very, very precise way. And that's really, it's a dream come true for, for material scientists. But it comes with a challenge. These are new questions and, and that has, have never been asked before. What is that sequence? Okay, we know a lot about the system, metrically, and we know it's ordered and everything, but we don't know what is next to what. But if and, you did
1: know, could we maybe design shape-shifting
2: materials? Yeah, I mean, I think always, uh, once you figure it out, you can do a lot of different things with it. But in this particular case, the exciting thing is that you're asking new questions, but also the tools to identify these sequences are not known. So we need to develop new tools. That's a perfect arena for scientists to come together to create something much, much larger than what we are doing now. And that's, that's, that's what I'm excited about.
1: And this work takes place at
2: the Molecular Foundry. This, uh, it, well, um, as you know, many people now are working on MOFs all around LBL, Berkeley, campus. A lot of Foundry scientists are very interested in, in MOFs. Um, but I think it's going to happen everywhere. So... Uh, I think teams are beginning to form to try to address this problem at LBL. So, again, this is very exciting.
1: Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about how the molecular foundry is structured. And for those who don't know, um, they're called it's called a user facility. It has nothing to do with a drug clinic. I made that mistake when I first came to the lab. Uh, but uh, why don't you explain what a user facility is and then how the molecular foundry itself is organized, because it actually is... Uh, but not only performs a great service, but it's actually a very uh, central to uh, operations here at the lab. Mm.
2: The molecular foundry uh, is about um, make a, making connection to researchers all around the world, from the U.S. and around the world. And the way we make these connections is that our own scientists do great research; that the world wants to come and work with them. And so so this happens in a, in a dual mode where a scientist would do their own research to develop expertise in a certain area and, and be known for that. But also, they give this expertise to users that come to the foundry to use facilities. And for the most part, the foundry is an unusual user facility in that a lot of people come to not just use instruments, but also... Uh, collaborate and and develop uh, their own expertise in what this founder scientist is doing. And uh, this is actually quite powerful because what you're teaching, let's say a user from another another university that, that is at the foundation, you're teaching them know-how. And uh, know-how is something that you can't read about. It's, it's not something you can publish. It's not something you can patent. It's because it's, it's science mixed in with art. And so you need this one-on-one interaction, which we have a lot of at the foundry. This is really how we, how we work. So our scientists have figured out a way of balancing their own research with the user interaction. And, and so they feed into each other. The user comes in with their own expertise, collaborate with with the founder scientists and the founder scientists giving their own expertise and so there is a, a give and take interaction that in the end uh, as one would say the whole is really much better than the sum of the parts there are many examples like this at the foundry and another thing that's great about the foundry I think is and it's quite attractive to me I'm, I'm really delighted to be among these scientists of the foundry is that most places operate in a in a horizontal fashion. The foundry we have the horizontal fashion. We build our core facilities in many different, diverse areas, from polymers to inorganic chemistry to biological uh, chemistry and molecules, theory, uh, nano fabrication and and uh, and imaging, nano imaging, and so on. These are quite diverse. Uh, expertise that cover chemistry biology physics they're all in one spot and so many of our scientists don't just operate horizontally within their own area of expertise but they also cross floors that's the power of the foundry is that once you start crossing disciplines now you can solve big big challenges and so so you know so so that's that, that's, that's exciting.
1: So this notion that some may still have, a very old notion, obviously, of a scientist working alone just is not obviously a real view. It's all strength in teams and...
2: I, ironically, I went into science because I wanted to be alone. You did? Actually, yes, I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want anybody to talk yeah, to me. Yeah, I think me. you
1: picked the wrong career. Yeah.
2: In fact, when I was growing up, I refused to show my parents my report card because I felt I need to be quite independent of them. And I should be able to do my own job. Why should they be checking up on me? So, <laughs> so I was quite offended by them asking me to show them this my report card. So, so I went into science because I thought it would be a solitary. Uh, and when did you learn otherwise? <laughs> oh, oh. I, I at an uncomfortably young age, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, as I became an independent researcher, I realized that that you have to earn your independence by making sure that there's plenty of interactions. And and I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I'm now a believer, having seen a place like the how the a place like the foundry operates.
1: Okay. We're going to take a moment now to see if anyone in the audience actually has questions. We have some mics up here. I'm going to check Does anyone. Okay. I can continue, but I want to make sure that folks in the audience actually have a chance if there are some specific questions you'd like to ask. We have one right here, John. Oh. Hi. Um, I'm a, an intern working at NERSC, and I spend a lot of time with software
3: for simulating atoms and molecules, and I also spend a lot of time considering the limitations of that software. Are there any limitations in the field of chemistry right now that you think are perhaps in the near future going to be overcome, and that's going to be exciting? Specifically, because maybe computational systems are getting more advanced.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the work that you're doing, for example, at once you start, once you have a way of taking building units and connecting them together to make not just MOFs but a lot of different. Structures of different chemical composition of different properties, then you need computation to not just tell you what kind of structure you need to get to what property, but you also need uh, need computation to tell you which structures are important enough to go after i 'm a synthetic chemist, so I, you know I have students that go into the lab and, and do stuff, so it would be nice to tell them well which structures are the most likely to form so that they don 't waste their whole. PhD thesis searching for something that is not there. Um, so that would be helpful. I think it adds richness to the way we think. But quite honestly, I don't, in general, I don't feel that we should be thinking in terms of limits. This is really the golden age of, of chemistry. This is the golden age of science, is that a lot of the things that I thought in my own research, which I'm supposed to be an expert on, uh, that we would be limited by uh, my students prove over and over again that I'm wrong, and so I gave up. I gave up saying that this is gonna, this is not gonna work, or that you know this kind of material will not form because they they've, they're constantly surprising me, and I'm delighted.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So while we wait for the next. Uh, I want to go back to this vision of this artificial, synthetic future. And the reason is because I work in public affairs, and so we sort of interface with a lot of folks in the community who are always alarmed by these, the, their sense of nature being altered in a way that, over which we have no control. And usually devolves to the question about safety. How can we be sure that these artificial things that you're creating are not going to escape and do something terrible to my world because it's always about how it affects humans on the outside well,
2: so look I mean a, a typical moth is made from components mm-hmm. of plastics that we drink water out of and uh, and uh, another component is uh, we put on our skin a sunscreen so I think uh, the other thing is that they're they're not soluble materials if this ends up in an automobile a fuel tank it would be there for the lifetime of that automobile we're not going to take it out and and then Every time you refuel, you have to change the material and then cause a, a problem. So uh, that's the beauty, I think, of, of, of science is that whatever challenge you have, you, can, you it can be addressed. This material, at the end of the day, you just add acid. It decomposes into its, the components that you put in there in the, in the, in the beginning and reassemble it and then put in another fuel tank. So it's a zero, potentially, it's a zero-discharge process. Is there
1: profit in that?
2: Is there a profit? Of course. Okay. Of
0: course.
2: a question Yeah. I, I just wondered, I uh,
0: work in public affairs and, and a lot of what we do is to document the historical
1: development of the lab as we move from a physics lab to uh,
0: to being the multidisciplinary lab we are at now. And, and, of course, the team science idea was something that Lawrence was, was known for for beginning when working with people outside of his discipline um, and and working vertically and but I wonder, as a solitary scientist, when you what really attracted you to the lab was it that idea that you were going to do that team science or that you just
1: discovered no. when
2: you got here that no you... i wasn 't attracted to team science at all i I wanted to go in the lab and do my own thing, and I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want my professor to talk to me or anybody. But it turns out that that interaction was quite beneficial because, you know, my PhD advisor, actually was spending two years with me, he's actually right here in LBL, um, who mentored me. Now I am mentoring him. Uh, but but he, I mean, he was a very important force in my life, not just my intellectual development. You know, learning how to be a good scientist doesn't just come to us in our DNA. I think this is something that, that we receive in mentoring and in that interaction with our professor, uh, that selfless giving on the part of the mentors, and at the same time, that, un, uh, well, un, what should I say, unrestrained criticism of, of, of a job not well done. Okay, so so I think that combination is very is very important to striving to, to do the right you know, experiment or to, to be um, to, to be a good scientist. And so I, I wanna go back to two points. One is bending nature. I think what I I, I don't wanna say that I'm bending nature. It's not I, I think that we're trying to create things um, of course you can't you know uh, force nature to do things right but we are trying to uncover things that are not well known and so um, so this this becomes more of a philosophical discussion but the the other the other thing I want to say is that I think a lot of very important discoveries in the at the outset happened because of soul uh, scientist effort team science contributes beyond that point contributes to solving a big a big problem that has very complex components so so there is a we have to make sure that the two aspects are preserved in in a science in a science enterprise
1: so how about the value of basic science again that's a tough concept to explain to folks because they're they're obviously interested in the application In the product, as I mentioned in the opening remarks, so obviously you're at the the basic level. If you were explaining that to folks and explaining the this the continuum from the very basic to the applied, what is the what is the value? How how do we make people understand
2: that? Well, I think the I think in, in basic science we're solving problems. And who doesn't want to solve problems? I mean, we, we want to solve problems in all aspects of our life, not just scientific problems. But the, the thing you're learning when you're solving problem, a scientific problems is you're, so, you're, you're also learning how to solve many other problems. Okay, so, so, it, so basic science is not just about uh, Professor Yagi going to the laboratory and, uh, or his students going to the laboratory and making new things. It's also about strategies and how do you solve problems, right? Be comfortable with failure, right? You go in the lab and you fail, and you, you fail miserably every day. You get up every morning, and go into the lab, and you fail. you fail. You fail, you fail, you fail, and you fail. And then there is a success. And, you know, we tell our students, well, those are increments of success towards the big success. <laughs> but they are, you know, I mean, it is a research is a very tough Thing and it, it requires a very special mind to to be able to stand the failure because there might be a success down the road. So this is not a trivial thing. And so in basic science, this is, you learn that, right? That and mean? and it's not it's a very American idea. Americans when they fail, they get up and they 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 are expected to succeed. In other cultures, when you fail, you're doomed. You can't come up. You, you know you can't. You can't you can't recover. So so it's it's so basic science is not is not an aspect of American society that, that is dissociated from who we are. It it is what we are. It's about going into something, exploring, failing, having goals, failing to to, to get there, but in the meantime you're learning about about nature, about about how and 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 how to get how to become better at solving the problem, and ultimately success reveals itself.
1: But you also need time, and isn't that the virtue of a publicly funded science enterprise versus a privately funded one? Because uh,
2: yeah, you need time, and uh, but you have to make sure that that time is well spent, so that you're not wasting money but a series of failures
1: over and over and over, as is often the case in science.
2: Yeah, but what is failure in the laboratory? Failure because maybe you didn't, maybe you set your bar too high, right? Then you call that failure, right? So failures are truly increments of success. That's really the, if you didn't fail, you probably will not be able to discover.
1: Are there other questions from the audience? This one right here.
0: Um, I wanted to know: um, Did you have to leave Jordan in order to pursue um, this kind of work? Was it uh, hard to leave your home country? To I don't know if you came to America to study or just you came to America to to teach or, you know, what was the? Do you ever go back to Jordan and share some of your? Uh, science or mentoring, I was just curious about that part of your life
2: yeah, sure um, yeah i one day I came back from school uh, I was in ninth grade, and my my father said, "You have a choice. you can go to the Soviet Union, become a doctor paid for by the by the system or you can go to America and work for it." and uh, And i said uh, i don 't want to do either i want to stay I want to stay here. I was in ninth grade and he said well that 's not an option and so I was shipped off to Troy, New York, where an older brother was there and uh, uh, and so I lived nearby and uh, I had to stand on my own feet uh, i don 't think this is a remarkable story at all I, I, I work with developing countries and try to build centers of excellence in in developing countries and it's not an it's not it's very common for people to sacrifice uh, their family life and so on to seek a better better life and uh, go after their passion so it in retrospect I should have had more fun but you know I was nervous making sure that I go to school and make sure I can pay my tuition and things like that but but uh, that's, that's a story very common, I think, in some places in America, in, in developing countries. Yeah.
1: There was another question here.
3: I'm interested in your comments about uh, nature, and uh, it, it occurs to me that there are some models in chemistry and, uh, and in material sciences uh, that occur naturally, uh, but that you can then take as an inspiration, perhaps. And I wonder if uh, you might, uh, I mean, moths themselves, uh, there are geological structures that are somewhat similar. Uh, if you could uh, talk about uh, the rel- relationship between inspiration uh, from nature and, and your own uh, inspiration.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I like that. I think, I think we can be inspired by how nature does things. We're doomed if we think we can duplicate, how na- mimic nature. But we would be well served, I think, to concept transfer from nature. How does a concept like let 's say DNA and ca- how does nature count? How does nature keep track of things and try to take that concept and say, "Well, how do I manifest this in a synthetic material and put it to good could, to good use as i as I described in the case of making let 's say liquid fuel so inspiration I think is very inspire you know being inspired by nature is very important, but that's nature and nature does things in a very specific way because it had a lot of time to to develop it making the moths or making any other artificial material in the laboratory uh, we make things that have not been discovered in nature uh, they may be out there i don 't know but but uh, but we, we always, we're very interested in, in how nature works. Yeah, but we should concept transfer from nature rather than trying to mimic, mimic nature.
3: Uh, just as a follow-up on that, I um, once met a chemist uh, at UCLA who was uh, involved in uh, building these new kinds of structures, uh, including clathrates. And uh, he would carry around a bag of uh, tinker toys, basically, on the bus, and he would you know, play around with putting these things together. But this was 20 years ago, and I'm wondering, uh, what kinds of tools do you have to uh, do synthetic chemistry now?
2: Well, um in, in terms of carrying tinker toys around, you, when you make a new structure, uh, first of all, it's really an exhilarating experience. When you look at that, when you've analyzed the crystals and you figured out what the structure is and it emerges from that hidden world that I refer to, that is an exhilar- that's a rush that comes through your body. And that's a moment you never forget. The other thing is that to understand that structure, you really have to take those tinker toys and put them together. And if you come to my office in, uh, on campus, you'll see that I have, um, I don't have any book. Well, I have three, four books, but, but that's it. I have models, we call them molecular models. And, and those were made mostly by me, but also some of my students, because the only way to understand a structure is by building that model on your own sticking them together just like they they would have during the during your chemistry during your reaction so once you do that you will not forget that structure and so this is a very good way to keep to keep these things in your in your mind the way that chemistry works in the lab is is actually it's it's embarrassingly simple you take a solution that has a metal ion in it you take a a solution that has an organic material. You mix them together and out comes the outcomes of stuff. So there are a few tricks here and there that you have to play in order for them to form ordered, to become, to, to, to come out as ordered form. But really, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, an 18-step process.
1: You know, all those chemistry sets at home that, you know, your your chemistry sets at home, those are actually useful, actually, to uh, kids play with?
2: I was was told that they're interesting for young children, yeah.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A little word association game to close. I know you came from UCLA, so before I get to the word association, let me ask you this. Is there a, a difference between the UCLA frame of mind and the Berkeley Lab frame of mind?
2: Um, to put you on the spot m- maybe you should invite me again next year after i've had time here but i mean i think so far well i mean lbl is 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 smaller than ucla and i don't mean in terms of the science but just overall that's mm-hmm. a university that's at least 40,000 students mm-hmm. and faculty so it's a different different atmosphere i i mean this is where you can really dig into into materials and try to understand them. This is this is a very special place.
1: Was there something about the history here, the ingenuity, the independence of mind that was that attracted you?
2: Yeah, the consistently great scientists that have that are here or have passed through here. Of course, that that was <laughs> that was a main component of my decision. Okay. Right.
1: All right. Uh, it's a little word association. Um, explore. What comes to mind? I say the word explore. What comes to mind?
2: I, I don't know this game, but what... Okay. Uh, well, I'm think sorry. Think of the, word, uh, the first uh, word that
1: comes to, comes to mind. I say explore. Oh, explore. What comes to mind? Um, molecules. Okay. Connect. Uh,
2: reticular chemistry.
1: You do to ask what that is.
2: Success. Um, nature papers. Art. Um, I, molecular models. Science. Molecular models. <laughs> <laughs> Berkeley Lab. Okay, and Berkeley Lab. No, uh, the term Berkeley Lab. What? Oh, the Berkeley Lab. Yeah. Ber- Berkeley Lab. Um, I, I think great people. Yeah. Well, we've reached the end
1: of the hour. Uh, I'd like you all to please thank Omar Yagi for appearing with us today.
0: Thank you.